Hi, everyone. This is your 1001 Stories Network host, John Hagedorn. And I want to thank each and every one of you listeners for the support you've given 1001 Stories from the Old West. Kevin Sykes has returned. And because listenership was so good for Tales of the Texas Rangers, we'll be running episodes from that show every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. This is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American frontier at 1001 Stories from the Old West. Welcome back to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, and today we have a departure from our regular fare. Today we're reading a fictional story written by Ernest Thompson Seton, who was ultimately one of the founders of scouting in North America. Mr. Seton was a writer of animal stories. And the story that we have today will be Lobo, King of the Kurumpa. This was made into a movie in 1962 by Disney called The Legend of Lobo. And I definitely recommend that you all go out and get it and share it with your family, particularly the young ones. It's filmed in beautiful Sedona, Arizona. Mr. Seton's story is genuinely heartbreaking. And I hope you enjoy it. Wild Animals I Have Known by Ernest Thompson Seton Lobo, the king of the Kurumpa. Kurumpa is a vast cattle range in northern New Mexico. It is a land of rich pastures and teeming flocks and herds, a land of rolling mesas and precious running water that at length unite into the Kurumpa River, from which the whole region is named. And the king, whose despotic power was felt over its entire extent, was an old gray wolf. Old Lobo or the king, as the Mexicans called him, was the gigantic leader of a remarkable pack of gray wolves that had ravaged the Kurumpa Valley for a number of years. All the shepherds and ranchmen knew him well, and wherever he appeared with his trusty band, terror reigned supreme among the cattle, and wrath and despair among their owners. Old Lobo was a giant among wolves, and was cunning and strong in proportion to his size. His voice at night was well known and easily distinguished from that of any of his fellows. An ordinary wolf might howl about half the night about the herdsman's bivouac without attracting more than a passing notice. But when the deep roar of the old king came booming down the canyon, the watcher bestirred himself and prepared to learn in the morning that fresh and serious inroads had been made among the herds. Old Lobo's band was but a small one. This I never quite understood, for usually when a wolf rises to the position and power that he had, he attracts a numerous following. It may be that he had as many as he desired, or perhaps his ferocious temper prevented the increase of his pack. Certain is it that Lobo had only five followers during the latter part of his reign. Each of these, however, was a wolf of renown, most of them were above the ordinary size. One in particular, the second-in-command, was a veritable giant. But even he was far below the leader in size and prowess. Several of the band, besides the two leaders, were especially noted. One of those was a beautiful white wolf that the Mexicans called Blanca. This was supposed to be a female, possibly Lobo's mate. Another was a yellow wolf of remarkable swiftness, which, according to current stories, had, on several occasions, captured an antelope for the pack. 
It will be seen, then, that these wolves were thoroughly well known to the cowboys and shepherds. They were frequently seen and often heard, and their lives were intimately associated with those of the cattlemen who would so gladly have destroyed them. There was not a stockman on the Kurumpah who would not readily have given the value of many steers for the scalp of any one of Lobo's band. But they seemed to possess charmed lives and defied all manner of devices to kill them. They scorned all hunters, derided all poisons, and continued for at least five years to exact their tribute from the Kurumpah ranchers to the extent, many said, of a cow each day. According to this estimate, therefore, the band had killed more than 2,000 of the finest stock, for, as was only too well known, they selected the best in every instance. The old idea that a wolf was constantly in a starving state and therefore ready to eat anything was as far as possible from the truth in this case. For these freebooters were always sleek and well-conditioned and were, in fact, most fastidious about what they ate. Any animal that had died from natural causes, or that was diseased or tainted, they would not touch, and they even rejected anything that had been killed by the stockmen. Their choice in daily food was the tenderer part of a freshly killed yearling heifer, an old bull or cow they disdained, and though they occasionally took a young calf or colt, it was quite clear that veal or horse flesh was not their favorite diet. It was also known that they were not fond of mutton, although they often amused themselves by killing sheep. One night in November 1893, Blanco and the Yellow Wolf killed 250 sheep, apparently for the fun of it, and did not eat an ounce of their flesh. These are examples of many stories which I might repeat to show the ravages of this destructive band. Many new devices for their extinction were tried each year, but still they lived and throve in spite of all the efforts of their foes. A great price was set on Lobo's head, and in consequence, poison in a score of subtle forms was put out for him, but he never failed to detect and avoid it. One thing only he feared, that was firearms, and knowing full well that all men in this region carried them, he never was known to attack or face a human being. Indeed, the set policy of his band was to take refuge in flight whenever, in the daytime, a man was descried, no matter at what distance. Lobo's habit of permitting the pack to eat only what they themselves had killed was in numerous cases their salvation, and the keenness of his scent to detect the taint of human hands or the poison itself, completed their immunity. On one occasion, one of the cowboys heard the too familiar rallying cry of old Lobo, and, stealthily approaching, he found the Kurumpah pack in a hollow where they had rounded up a small herd of cattle. Lobo sat apart on a knoll while Blanca and the rest were endeavoring to cut out a young cow, which they had selected. But the cattle were standing in a compact mass with their heads outward and presented to the foe a line of horns, unbroken, save when some cow, frightened by a fresh onset of the wolves, tried to retreat into the middle of the herd. 
It was only by taking advantage of these breaks that the wolves had succeeded at all in wounding the selected cow. But she was far from being disabled, and it seemed that Lobo at length lost patience with his followers, for he left his position on the hill and, uttering a deep roar, dashed down toward the herd. The terrified rank broke at his charge, and he sprang in among them. Then the cattle scattered like the pieces of a bursting bomb. Away went the chosen victim, but ere she had gone twenty-five yards, Lobo was upon her. Seizing her by the neck, he suddenly held back with all his force, and so threw her heavily to the ground. The shock must have been tremendous, for the heifer was thrown heels over head. Lobo also turned a somersault, but immediately recovered himself, and his followers falling on the poor cow killed her in a few seconds. Lobo took no part in the killing. After having thrown the victim, he seemed to say, Now, why could not some of you have done that without wasting so much time? The man rode up shouting. The wolves, as usual, retired, and he, having a bottle of strychnine, quickly poisoned the carcass in three places, then went away, knowing they would return to feed, as they had killed the animal themselves. But next morning, on going to look for his expected victims, he found that, although the wolves had eaten the heifer, they had very carefully cut out and thrown aside all those parts that had been poisoned. The dread of this great wolf spread yearly among the ranchmen, and each year a larger price was set on his head, until at last it reached a thousand dollars, an unparalleled wolf bounty, surely. Many a good man has been hunted down for less. Tempted by the promised reward, a Texan ranger named Tannery came one day galloping up the canyon of the Kurumpa. He had a superb outfit for wolf hunting. The best of guns and horses and a pack of enormous wolfhounds. Far out on the plains of the Panhandle, he and his dogs had killed many a wolf. And now he never doubted that within a few days, old Lobo's scalp would dangle at his saddlebow. Away they went bravely on their hunt in the gray dawn of a summer morning, and soon the great dogs gave joyous tongue to say that they were already on the track of their quarry. Within two miles, the grisly band of Kurumpa leaped into view, and the chase grew fast and furious. The part of the wolfhounds was merely to hold the wolves at bay till the hunter could ride up and shoot them, and this usually was easy on the open plains of Texas. But here, a new feature of the country came into play, and showed how well Lobo had chosen his range, for the rocky canyons of the Kurumpa and its tributaries intersect the prairies in every direction. The old wolf pack at once made for the nearest one of these and by crossing it got rid of the horsemen. His band then scattered and thereby scattered the dogs. And when they reunited at a distant point, of course, all the dogs did not turn up. And the wolves, no longer outnumbered, turned on their pursuers and killed or desperately wounded them all. That night, when Tannery mustered his dogs, only six of them returned and of these, two were terribly lacerated. This hunter made two other attempts to capture the royal scalp, but neither of them was any more successful than the first, and on the last occasion his best horse met its death by a fall. 
So he gave up the chase in disgust and went back to Texas, leaving Lobo more than ever the despot of the region. Next year, two other hunters appeared, determined to win the promised bounty. Each believed he could destroy this noted wolf, the first by means of a newly devised poison, which was to be laid out in an entirely new manner. The other, a French-Canadian, by poison assisted with certain spells and charms, for he firmly believed that Lobo was a veritable werewolf and could not be killed by ordinary means. But cunningly compounded poisons, charms, and incantations were all of no avail against this grisly devastator. He made his weekly rounds and daily banquets as aforetime, and before many weeks were passed, Cologne and Lalac gave up in despair and went elsewhere to hunt. In the spring of 1893, after his unsuccessful attempt to capture Lobo, Joe Cologne had a humiliating experience, which seems to show that the big wolf simply scorned his enemies and had absolute confidence in himself. Cologne's farm was on a small tributary of the Kurumpah, in a picturesque canyon, and among the rocks of this very canyon, within a thousand yards of the house, Old Lobo and his mates selected their den and raised their family that season. There they lived all summer and killed Joe's cattle, sheep, and dogs, but laughed at all his poisons and traps and rested securely among the recesses of the cavernous cliffs. While Joe vainly racked his brain for some method of smoking them out or of reaching them with dynamite, but they escaped entirely unscathed and continued their ravages as before. There's where he lived all last summer, said Joe, pointing to the face of the cliff, and I couldn't do a thing with him. I was like a fool to him. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. This history, gathered so far from the cowboys, I found hard to believe until, in the fall of 1893, I made the acquaintance of the wily marauder, and at length came to know him more thoroughly than anyone else. Some years before, in the bingo days, I had been a wolf hunter, but my occupation since then had been that of another sort, chaining me to a stool and desk. I was much in need of a change, and when a friend, who was also a ranch owner on the Kurumpah, asked me to come to New Mexico and try if I could do anything with this predatory pack, I accepted the invitation and, eager to make the acquaintance of its king, was as soon as possible among the mesas of that region. I spent some time riding about to learn the country, and at intervals my guide would point to some skeleton of a cow to which the hide still adhered and remark, That's some of his work. It became quite clear to me that in this rough country it was useless to think of pursuing Lobo with hounds or horses, so that poison or traps were the only available expedients. At present we had no traps large enough, so I set to work with poison. I need not enter into the details of a hundred devices that I employed to circumvent this werewolf. There was no combination of strychnine, arsenic, cyanide, or prussic acid that I did not assay, 
There was no manner of flesh that I did not try as bait. But morning after morning, as I rode forth to learn the result, I found that all my efforts had been worthless. The old king was too cunning for me. A single instance will show his wonderful sagacity. Acting on the hint of an old trapper, I melted some cheese together with the kidney fat of a freshly killed heifer, stewing it in a china dish and cutting it with a bone knife to avoid the taint of metal. When the mixture was cool, I cut it into lumps, and making a hole in one side of each lump, I inserted a large dose of strychnine and cyanide contained in a capsule that was impermeable by any odor. Finally, I sealed up the holes with pieces of the cheese itself. During the whole process, I wore a pair of gloves steeped in the hot blood of the heifer and even avoided breathing on the baits. When all was ready, I put them in a rawhide bag rubbed all over with blood and rode forth, dragging the liver and kidneys of the beef at the end of a rope. With this, I made a ten-mile circuit, dropping a bait at each quarter mile and taking the utmost care, always, not to touch any with my hands. Lobo generally came into this part of the range in the early part of the week and passed the latter part. It was supposed around the base of the Sierra Grande. This was Monday, and the same evening as we were about to retire, I heard the deep bass howl of His Majesty. On hearing it, one of the boys briefly remarked, There he is. We'll see. The next morning I went forth, eager to know the result. I soon came on the fresh trail of the robbers. With Lobo in the lead, his track was always easily distinguished. An ordinary wolf's forefoot is about four and a half inches long. That of a large wolf, four and three-quarter inches long. But Lobo's, as measured a number of times, was five and a half inches from claw to heel. I afterward found that his proportions were commensurate, for he stood three feet high at the shoulder and weighed a 150 pounds. His tail, therefore, though obscured by those of his followers, was never difficult to trace. The pack had soon found the track of my drag and, as usual, followed it. I could see that Lobo had come to the first bait, sniffed about it, and finally had picked it up. Then I could not conceal my delight. I got him at last, I exclaimed. I shall find him stark within a mile. And I galloped on with eager eyes fixed on the great broad track in the dust. It led me to the second bait that was also gone. Oh, how I exulted. I surely have him now and perhaps several of his band. But there was the broad paw mark still on the drag. And though I stood in the stirrup and scanned the plain, I saw nothing that looked like a dead wolf. Again I followed, to find now that the third bait was gone, and the wolf king's track led on to the fourth, there to learn that he had not really taken the bait at all, but had merely carried them in his mouth. Then, having piled all three on the fourth, he scattered filth over them, to express his utter contempt for my devices. After this, he left my drag and went about his business with the pack he guarded so effectively. This was only one of many similar experiences, which convinced me that poison would never avail to destroy this robber. 
and though I continued to use it while awaiting the arrival of the traps, it was only because it was, meanwhile, a sure means of killing many prairie wolves and other destructive vermin. About this time there came under my observation an incident that will illustrate Lobo's diabolic cunning. These wolves had at least one pursuit which was merely an amusement. It was stampeding and killing sheep, though they rarely ate them. The sheep are usually kept in flocks, from 1,000 to 3,000, under one or more shepherds. At night they are gathered in the most sheltered place available, and a herdsman sleeps on each side of the flock to give additional protection. Sheep are such senseless creatures that they are liable to be stampeded by the smallest trifle, but they have deeply ingrained in their nature one, and perhaps only one, strong weakness, namely to follow their leader. And this the shepherds turn to good account by putting half a dozen goats in the flock of sheep. The latter recognize the superior intelligence of their bearded cousins, and when a night alarm occurs, they crowd around them, and usually are thus saved from a stampede and are easily protected. But it was not always so. One night in late November, two Perico shepherds were aroused by an onset of wolves. Their flocks huddled around the goats, which, being neither fools nor cowards, stood their ground and were bravely defiant. But alas for them, no common wolf was heading the attack. Old Lobo, the werewolf, knew as well as the shepherds that the goats were the moral force of the flock. So, hastily running over the backs of the densely packed sheep, he fell on these leaders and slew them all in a few minutes, and soon had the luckless sheep stampeding in a thousand different directions. For weeks afterwards, I was almost daily accosted by some anxious shepherd who asked, Have you seen any of the stray OTO sheep lately? And usually, I was obliged to say I had. One day it was, yes, I came on five or six carcasses by Diamond Springs. On another it was to the effect that I had seen a small bunch running on the Malpai Mesa. Or again, no, but Juan Miera saw about twenty freshly killed on Cedramonte two days ago. At length the wolf traps arrived, and with two men I worked a whole week to get them properly set out. We spared no labor pains. I adopted every device I could think of that might help ensure success. The second day after the traps arrived, I rode around to inspect and soon came upon Lobo's trail, running from trap to trap. In the dust, I could read the whole story of his doings that night. He had trotted along in the darkness, and although the traps were so carefully concealed, he had instantly detected the first one. Stopping the onward march of the pack, he had cautiously scratched around it until he had disclosed the trap, the chain, and the log, then left them wholly exposed to view with the trap still unsprung, and passing on, he treated over a dozen traps in the same fashion. Very soon I noticed that he stopped and turned aside as soon as he detected suspicious signs on the trail, and a new plan to outwit him at once suggested itself. I set traps in the form of an H, that is, with a row of traps on each side of the trail, and one in the trail for the crossbar of the H. 
Before long, I had an opportunity to count another failure. Lobo came trotting along the trail and was fairly between the parallel lines before he detected the single trap in the trail. But he stopped in time. And why or how he knew enough, I cannot tell. The angel of the wild things must have been with him. But without turning an inch to right or left, he slowly and cautiously backed on his own tracks, putting each paw exactly in its old track until he was off the dangerous ground. Then returning, at one side, he scratched clods and stones with his hind feet till he had sprung every trap. This he did on many other occasions, and although I varied my methods and redoubled my precautions, he was never deceived. His sagacity seemed never at fault, and he might have been pursuing his career of rapine today, but for an unfortunate alliance that proved his ruin and added his name to the long list of heroes who, unassailable when alone, have fallen through the indiscretion of a trusted ally. Once or twice I found indications that everything was not quite right in the Kroonpaw pack. There were signs of irregularity, I thought. For instance, there were clearly the trail of a smaller wolf running ahead of the leader at times. And this I could not understand until a cowboy made a remark which explained the matter. I saw them today, he said, and the wild one that breaks away is Blanca. Then the truth dawned upon me, and I added, Now I know that Blanca is a she-wolf, because were he a he-wolf, Lobo would kill him at once. This suggested a new plan. I killed a heifer and set one or two other obvious traps about the carcass. Then, cutting off the head, which is considered useless awful and quite beneath the notice of a wolf, I set it a little apart and around it placed six powerful steel traps properly deodorized and concealed with utmost care. During my operations, I kept my hands, boots, and implements smeared with fresh blood and afterwards sprinkled the ground with the same as though it had flowed from the head. And when the traps were buried in the dust, I brushed the place over with the skin of a coyote, and with the foot of the same animal, made a number of tracks over the traps. The head was so placed that there was a narrow passage between it and some tussocks. And in this passage, I buried two of my best traps, fastening them to the head itself. Wolves have a habit of approaching every carcass they get the wind of in order to examine it, even when they have no intention of eating it, and I hoped that this habit would bring the Kroonpaw pack within reach of my latest stratagem. I did not doubt that Lobo would detect my handiwork about the meat and prevent the pack from approaching it, but I did build some hopes on the head, for it looked as though it had been thrown aside as useless. Next morning I sallied forth to inspect the traps, and there, oh joy, were the tracks of the pack, and the place where the beef head and its traps had been was empty. A hasty study of the trail showed that Lobo had kept the pack from approaching the meat, but one small wolf had evidently gone on to examine the head as it lay apart and had walked right into one of the traps." We set out on the trail and within a mile discovered that the hapless wolf was Blanca. 
Away she went, however, at a gallop, and although encumbered by the beef head, which weighed over fifty pounds, she speedily distanced my companion, who was on foot. But we overtook her when she reached the rocks, for the horns of the cow had become caught and held her fast. She was the handsomest wolf I had ever seen. Her coat was in perfect condition and nearly white. She turned to fight, and raising her voice in the rallying cry of her race, sent a long howl rolling over the canyon. From far away upon the mesa came a deep response, the cry of Old Lobo. That was her last call, for now we had closed in on her, and all her energy and breath were devoted to combat. Then followed the inevitable tragedy, the idea of which I shrank from afterward more than at the time. We each threw a lasso over the neck of the doomed wolf and strained our horses in the opposite directions until blood burst from her mouth. Her eyes glazed, her limbs stiffened, and then fell limp. Homeward then we rode, carrying the dead wolf and exulting over this, the first death blow we had been able to inflict on the Kurumpah pack. At intervals during the tragedy and after, as we rode homeward, we heard the roar of Lobo as he wandered about on the distant mesas, where he seemed to be searching for Blanca. He had never really deserted her, but, knowing that he could not save her, his deep-rooted dread of firearms had been too much for him when he saw us approaching. All that day, we heard him wailing as he roamed in his quest, and I remarked at length to one of the boys, Now, indeed, I truly know that Blanca was his mate. As the evening fell, he seemed to be coming toward the home canyon, for his voice sounded continually nearer. There was an unmistakable note of sorrow in it now, and it was no longer the loud, defiant howl, but a long, plaintive wail. Blanca, Blanca, he seemed to call. And as night came down, I noticed that he was not far from the place where we had overtaken her. At length, he seemed to find the trail, and when he came to the spot where we had killed her, his heartbroken wailing was piteous to hear. It was sadder than I could possibly have believed. Even the stolid cowboys noticed it and said they had never heard a wolf carry on like that before. He seemed to know exactly what had taken place, for her blood had stained the place of her death. Then he took up the trail of the horses and followed it to the ranch house. Whether in hopes of finding her there or in quest of revenge, I do not know, but the latter was what he found, for he surprised our unfortunate watchdog outside and tore him to little bits within fifty yards of the door. He evidently came alone this time, for I found but one trail next morning, and he had galloped about in a reckless manner that was very unusual with him. I had half expected this, and had set a number of additional traps about the pasture. Afterward, I found that he had indeed fallen into one of these, but such was his strength that he had torn himself loose and cast it aside. I believed that he would continue in the neighborhood until he found her body, at least, so I concentrated all my energies on this one enterprise of catching him 
before he left the region and while yet in this reckless mood. Then I realized what a mistake I had made in killing Blanca, for by using her as a decoy, I might have secured him the next night. I gathered in all the traps I could command, 130 strong steel wolf traps, and set them in fours in every trail that led into the canyon. Each trap was separately fastened to a log, and each log was separately buried. In burying them, I carefully removed the sod, and every particle of earth that was lifted we put in blankets, so that after the sod was replaced and all was finished, the eye could detect no trace of human handiwork. When the traps were concealed, I trailed the body of poor Blanca over each place, and made of it a drag that circled about the ranch. And finally I took off one of her paws, and made with it a line of tracks over each trap. Every precaution and device known to me I used, and retired at a late hour to await the result. Once during the night I thought I heard old Lobo, but was not sure of it. Next day I rode around, but darkness came on before I completed the circuit of the North Canyon, and I had nothing to report. At supper, one of the cowboys said, There was a great row among the cattle in the North Canyon this morning. Maybe there's something in the traps there. It was afternoon of the next day before I got to the place referred to, and as I drew near, a great grisly form arose from the ground, vainly endeavoring to escape. And there, revealed before me, stood Lobo, king of the Kurumpa, firmly held in the traps. Poor old hero. He had never ceased to search for his darling, and when he found the trail her body had made, he followed it recklessly, and so fell into the snare prepared for him. There he lay in the iron grasp of all four traps, perfectly helpless, and all around him were numerous tracks, showing how the cattle had gathered about him to insult the fallen despot, without daring to approach within his reach. For two days and two nights he had lain there, and now was worn out with struggling. Yet, when I went near him, he rose up with bristling mane and raised his voice, and, for the last time, made the canyon reverberate with his deep bass roar, a call for help, the muster call of his band. But there was none to answer him, and, left alone in his extremity, he whirled about with all his strength and made a desperate effort to get at me. All in vain, each trap was a dead drag of over 300 pounds, and in their relentless fourfold grasp, with the great steel jaws on every foot, and the heavy logs and chains all entangled together, he was absolutely powerless. How his huge ivory tusks did grind on those cruel chains, and when I ventured to touch him with my rifle barrel, he left grooves on it which are there to this day. His eyes glared green with hate and fury, and his jaws snapped with a hollow chop as he vainly endeavored to reach me and my trembling horse. But he was worn out with hunger and struggling and loss of blood, and he soon sank exhausted to the ground. Something like compunction came over me, as I prepared to deal out to him that which so many had suffered at his hands. Grand old outlaw, hero of a thousand lawless raids, 
In a few minutes you'll be but a great load of carrion. It cannot be otherwise. Then I swung my lasso and sent it whistling over his head. But not so fast. He was yet far from being subdued, and before the supple coils had fallen on his neck, he seized the noose and with one fierce chop cut through its thick strands and dropped it in two pieces at his feet. Of course, I had my rifle as a last resource, but I did not wish to spoil his royal hide, so I galloped back to the camp and returned with a cowboy and a fresh lasso. We threw to our victim a stick of wood, which he seized in his teeth, and before he could relinquish it, our lassos whistled through the air and tightened on his neck. Yet, before the light had died from his fierce eyes, I cried, Stay! We will not kill him. Let us take him alive to the camp. He was so completely powerless now that it was easy to put a stout stick through his mouth behind his tusks and then lash his jaws with a heavy cord, which was also fastened to the stick. The stick kept the cord in, and the cord kept the stick in, so he was harmless. As soon as he felt his jaws were tied, he made no further resistance and uttered no sound, but looked calmly at us and seemed to say, Well, you've got me at last. Do as you please with me. And from that time, he took no more notice of us. We tied his feet securely, but he never groaned, nor growled, nor turned his head. Then, with our united strength, we were just able to put him on my horse. His breath came evenly, as though sleeping, and his eyes were bright and clear again, but did not rest on us. Afar on the great rolling mesas they were fixed, his passing kingdom, where his famous band was now scattered, and he gazed till the pony descended the pathway into the canyon and the rocks cut off the view. By traveling slowly, we reached the ranch in safety, and after securing him with a collar and a strong chain, we staked him out on the pasture and removed the cords. Then, for the first time, I could examine him closely and proved how unreliable is vulgar report when a living hero or tyrant is concerned. He had not a collar of gold about his neck, nor was there on his shoulders an inverted cross to denote that he had leagued himself with Satan. But I did find on one haunch a great broad scar that tradition says was the feigned mark of Juno, the leader of Tannery's wolfhounds, a mark which she gave him the moment before he stretched her lifeless on the sands of the canyon. I set meat and water beside him, but he paid no heed. He lay calmly on his breast and gazed with those steadfast yellow eyes away past me down through the gateway of the canyon over the open plains, his plains. Nor moved a muscle when I touched him. When the sun went down, he was still gazing fixedly across the prairie. I expected he would call up his band when night came and prepared for them. But he had called once in his extremity, and none had come. He would call never again. A lion shorn of his strength, an eagle robbed of his freedom, or a dove bereft of his mate, all die, it is said, of a broken heart. And who will aver that this grim bandit could bear the threefold brunt 
whole heart. This only I know, that when the morning dawned, he was lying there, still in his position of calm repose, his body unwounded, but his spirit was gone. The old king wolf was dead. I took the chain from around his neck. A cowboy helped me carry him to the shed where lay the remains of Blanca. And as we laid him beside her, the cattleman exclaimed, There, you would come to her. Now you are together again. The end. And that concludes our reading of Lobo, King of the Kurumpai by Ernest Thompson Seton. I found it a little hard to read at times, for sure. Uh, definitely a sad story. They can't all be fun. But what a good story. And come back next week and we'll have another one. And don't forget to tune in to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Radio Days, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. John Hagedorn at the 1001 Stories Network puts together a virtually limitless trove of great audio entertainment. We are glad to be part of that. So tune in, leave a review on iTunes, give us a five-star rating on Spotify, and help us out on Patreon. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story. Thanks for joining us for Tales of the Texas Rangers with Joel McRae. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories from the Old West. Reviews are always appreciated. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll be back soon.